This morning we continue our journey towards Easter and the six weeks of Lent by focusing on the six great ends of the church. These six great ends are in the back of your bulletin, and today we're taking on the promotion of social righteousness, the call for justice. These six great ends are in no particular order. I mean, they're ordering is not an indication of their importance, in other words. All six are equally important. And the text for today's sermon comes from the prophet Micah. Micah and other prophets in the Old Testament spoke to the 8th century B.C. community of Israel and Judah, calling for justice in their institutions. So I invite you to listen for God's word as it comes to us from the prophet Micah. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings or with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious and almighty God, we come before you to receive from you what you alone can give. We ask that you would speak to us now and quiet within us any voice but your own, that we may receive your word and be not hearers only, but doers as well. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You know, several weeks ago on Tuesday, March the 12th, my wife and I found ourselves that evening with the remote control switching between channels on the television looking for the unfolding story of the admissions scandal at top colleges and universities. That day, the Justice Department had unsealed indictments against admissions advisors and coaches, school officials that were offering Wealthy families a backdoor into colleges of their choice. Fifty people in all were charged that day, including actresses Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin. And those two seemed to attract more attention by the media than any of the other 50. Laughlin's daughters were both admitted to USC after payments of around a half a million dollars to William Singer's foundation a front that claimed to support disadvantaged kids, but was instead being used to funnel laundered money to coaches and test takers and dishonest proctors of exams. SAT proctors were correcting exam answers in some cases. In other cases, a Harvard graduate was sitting for the exam instead of the student. Applicants Pictures were photoshopped on athletes' bodies engaged in sports 
that the applicants never played. So they'd receive admission to a sailing team or a track team, for example. And all of that led to this sense that so many cynics want to believe that our institutions are rigged. See, here's the evidence. It's all about privilege. And it undermines our institutions. One commentator that night, I think it was on MSNBC, expressed anguish as the mother of a child with disabilities that now anyone who's allowed extra time on an SAT exam will be suspected of fraudulently seeking advantage rather than deserving additional assistance. Then it raises the whole question about other qualified applicants who did not receive admission because of these fraudulent activities, and now there's a class action suit that's been filed. Justice. Justice. Something's gone terribly wrong here, hasn't it? This is an unfair advantage to those who don't deserve it. They're already privileged. People with enormous advantages already are using their wealth to game the system, to seek personal advantage at the expense of others. Where is justice? Words of Amos from the 8th century BCE. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an unfailing stream. I hate, I despise your feasts. I find no satisfaction in your solemn assemblies, says the prophet. Take the noise of your songs away from me. I will not listen to the music from your harps, says the Lord. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an unfailing stream. It seems we have a whole lot in common with the 8th century BCE. Much more than we want to admit. The prophets Amos and Isaiah and Michael, Micah all called for justice as the indispensable qualification for worship. No justice? There can be no acceptable worship of the Lord In 1977, when Jimmy Carter was inaugurated as President of the United States, he took the oath of office on a Bible that was opened to this passage in Micah 6, 6 through 8, and quoted these words, He hath shown thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In 1959, the Soviet Union presented to the United Nations a bronze sculpture of a man beating a sword into a plowshare, a symbol of universal hope for disarmament and peace. And on the base of that nine-foot sculpture are words paraphrasing Micah, and Isaiah, that we shall beat our swords into plowshares. 
the language of the Bible, the call for justice and righteousness in our dealings with one another has set the standard for the measurement of what is right and what is wrong. Our image of justice, of course, is the scales of justice and the blind approach to justice. So there's one standard applied to all. Not more justice for those who can afford it. But today our cynicism calls into question anyone who's successful. Because we've so lost confidence in our institutions, politicians, priests, Supreme Court justices, all viewed suspiciously as wolves in sheep's clothing, seeking only personal advantage, only appearing to care about things like justice and righteousness. So today we hear all over a call for economic justice and environmental justice and racial ethnic justice. But what do we mean by all of that? Over a century ago, when the great ends of the church were first identified and used, it meant going beyond simply our personal piety. It meant participating in the transformation of the structures of society. Those structures that left so many people poor and unable to get ahead. People who were not benefiting from the industrial growth of the country and the prosperity that others were experiencing. The 19th century progressive movement focused on things like the abolition of slavery, the suffrage movement for women's rights, the devastating effect of alcoholism in individuals and families. And churches and church leaders saw people in the Bowery in New York, for instance, or on Skid Row here in Los Angeles, needing more than they could provide through pastoral care. People needed treatment. People needed new opportunities. People were working in company towns and they were so in debt to their employers that they were unable to free themselves from bondage to their jobs, jobs that they worked at six days a week, in mines, on assembly lines, when the promotion of social righteousness came into being, it was their way of saying, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an unfailing stream. All should be lifted up. Now, whatever you may think about the effectiveness of their efforts a century ago, there was this inspiration and this attempt to lift the marginalized in our society, the poor, the forgotten, the new immigrant that ensured everyone was treated fairly, justly, compassionately. It's just that those with advantages, whether they're political or economic or educational, tend to use their advantages for their own benefit. 
sometimes at the expense of others. And if we lose the ability to care, to care for others, our neighbors in our society, we undermine the very basis of our society. What does the Lord require, O mortal? To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. A society based upon law, applied equally to everyone. In the Old Testament, the story of Naboth's vineyard underscores the fact that not even the king, not even the king gets to steal his neighbor's inheritance, his land. The same standard applies regardless of your status, your wealth, or your influence. And today, it seems to me, we have extremes on both sides when it comes to justice. For example, I have a friend who, whose son, late 30s, loves LaCroix water. It's like Pellegrino. It's essentially carbonated water. There's no sugars. It's healthy for the body, much healthier than, say, sodas or fruit juices. So this son drinks several cans of LaCroix water every day, and he feels good about his choice. He's doing something good for his body, has limited damage to the environment. However, when LaCroix came out with their new advertising campaign and they placed on their product the word innocent, this young man decided, I'm never buying LaCroix water again. Defended his sensitivities. The company overstepped in his mind in claiming it was innocent of any damage to the environment, any injustice in how they compensate their employees, any collusion in how they deal with their investors, any misrepresentation in their annual report. Innocent is not a word that should be used ever as an advertising slogan. So he no longer drinks LaCroix water. <laughs> now, I think some of us get offended a little too easily. But he also has a point. Some words matter. What they represent matter a great deal, and when they're degraded by our use of those words, well... Things that matter suffer. Justice, mercy, humility. Simple enough conceptually, but how do you really feel about the Mueller report? What do you really think about Jesse Smollett's situation where the prosecutors dropped the charges in Chicago? gets more complicated. What we do know is that the Lord demands justice, both personally and corporately. 
It's more important than how we worship. The Lord expects us to act with justice and mercy and kindness towards others, not using them for our own selfish advantage. The Lord expects us to have humility in our relationships rather than arrogance and pride that always precedes a fall. And when there's a miscarriage of justice, we shouldn't turn our backs because it doesn't affect us personally. Boy, I'm guilty of that. I get outraged when I feel some injustice has been done to me. I could care less when the same injustice is done to somebody I don't know. Are we tempted to cheat on our taxes? Do we return the extra money that the clerk gave us wrongly when we settled the bill? Dear Abby once said, the best index to a person's character is A, how he treats people who can't do him any good, and B, how he treats people who can't fight back. What are we really like? begins with how we treat one another in our families, in our churches, in our neighborhoods. But it also includes how we treat one another in our schools and in our courts and in our legislative, executive, and judicial branches of government. You see, every week when we gather for worship, we pray the Lord's Prayer together. And we ask that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that prayer, but are we actually willing to live into the reality that it anticipates? Can we live now like we will live then, with justice and mercy and in humility? Back in that progressive era where this language of the promotion of social, what's the word I'm looking for? Not justice, but <laughs> I just, uh, the social righteousness, thank you. Out of that same era came this 1896 novel by Charles Sheldon entitled In His Steps. By 1935, that book had been translated into two dozen languages, inspiring many in the social gospel movement of the time. And in the story, a pastor named Maxwell is challenged by a homeless man to live in the light of his own Christian convictions. The pastor, in turn, exhorts the members of his congregation to ask themselves before every decision, what would Jesus do? And as church members in that novel begin to take action in ways consistent with their answer to that question, the community surrounding the church begins to be transformed. Now, I know you're familiar with WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do? They were very popular back in the 90s. 
but it tended to emphasize individual spiritual growth and renewal. But it came from this novel in 1896, which was emphasizing our social responsibility. There's nothing wrong with individual spiritual growth and renewal. But Sheldon's novel was much more focused upon the renewal of society itself. The prophets from the 8th century BCE were focused on the renewal of society itself. Maybe it's time once again that we focus on the renewal of society today. It begins individually, but it never ends there. Do what is right. Seek justice, especially for those who cannot do anything for you. You know, recently I was talking with our daughter. One day following work in North Carolina, she and a colleague at work walked out to their parking lot, and the colleague's car was gone. She immediately thought somebody had stolen her car. She called the police. Turned out she was way behind in her payments and it had been repossessed. Single mom. Her husband had died a year previously and left her with a mountain of debt that she had no idea he had taken on. So she received a little bit of help from our daughter. And in her thank you note, she wrote, Thank you for seeing me and not my circumstances. Do justice, love kindness. And walk humbly with your God. Amen.